0: Good morning, let's open our Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 31. I've entitled um, the morning's message, The Calm Before the Storm. In Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the days that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is a covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they will be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. And thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for a light by day and the ordinance of the moon and the stars for a light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. For thus says the Lord, if heaven above can be measured, and the foundations of the earth stretched out beneath. Then I will also cast off the seed of Israel, for all that they have done, says the Lord. As we get into chapters 30 through 33, there's a whole different tone to the message. It's bright, it's encouraging. Temporarily, Jeremiah leaves off his heavy uncompromising, unchanging prophecy of their future captivity and destruction of Solomon's temple in the city of Jerusalem. So the reason I called it the calm before the storm is the storm is going to hit in chapter 34. And we are in chapters 30 through 33 right now. But when we get to 34, it begins that section of the book where Jerusalem actually will fall. As a matter of fact, in chapter 32, Jeremiah is in prison in the king's house. Uh, Zedekiah is the king. He's already proven the false prophets wrong. Um, Seven years earlier, they prophesied. Two years, everybody's going home. Don't worry, King Jeconiah, he'll be back. The treasures that they took from the temple will have them back. Well, that was seven years earlier proving they were false prophets. And in chapter 32, Jerusalem is already laid in siege by King Nebuchadnezzar. So the reason the calm before the storm is these chapters that speak about Israel's future hope, not only that after 70 years he's going to bring them back, but he he jettisons into the future and talks about bringing israel back again actually establishing the kingdom age and we will be looking at that this morning this morning there are five prophecies we're going to look at each one of them individually and probably a good place to start is go back to chapter 30 the last verse i'd like to read it when daniel gave his prophecies he asked the lord to give further clarity to what he had been shown but the Lord told Daniel, he says, Daniel, go your way. These things that I've showed you are shut up and they're sealed until. That little word until is going to come in the study a couple times this morning. Until um, these things are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. And you'll know the last days because knowledge will increase. People will travel to and fro. None of the wicked will understand, but the wise he said, we'll understand in the last days. So if you look at this last verse of chapter 30, as Jeremiah is prophesying here, the very last sentence I have underlined, it says, in the latter days, you will consider it. In other words, in the latter days, you will actually understand the things that we're talking about here. Now, we're not gonna get any farther than a second prophecy, a prophecy I would never would have been able to get unless it had been past tense and I'm getting a little ahead of myself and teasing you a little bit, but there's no way you would get this prophecy unless you have uh, the ability to look at it past tense, not future tense. So he's telling us that we in the latter days will consider it, will understand it, because we have had history go by, and we know it's a fact of history that Israel spent 70 years in Babylon. It's a historical fact. Taken over by um, the Medes and the Persians, taken over by Alexander the Great, taken over by the Roman Empire. And eventually, the last world religion is yet on the horizon, and I think forming very quickly. So, first prophecy, let's look at chapter 30 and look at the first eight verses, and we'll read those, picking up at verse 1. Here's the first prophecy. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying thus speaks the Lord God of Israel saying write a book for yourself all the words that I have spoken to you for behold the days are coming says the Lord that I will bring back from captivity my people Israel and Judah says the Lord and I will cause them to return to their land I gave to their fathers and they will possess it now these are the words that the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah for thus says the Lord we have heard a voice of trembling of fear not of peace ask thou and see whether a man is ever in labor with child so why do I see every man with his hands on his loins like a woman in labor and all faces have turned pale alas for that great day has come there's none like it It is the time of Jacob's trouble, but he will be saved from it. Here is a prophecy. It is one of several names for a seven-year period of time. Daniel called it in Daniel chapter 9, this same event, the time of Jacob's trouble. He refers to it as Daniel's 70th week. Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. It says he will confirm a covenant with many for one week. And when you read that whole chapter, a week is equivalent to seven years. It would be like if I said I'll see in a decade, how long am I gone for? I'm gone for 10 years. We understand that a decade is 10 years. So here when he says um, I owe Israel one week that has not yet been fulfilled, that week is a seven-year period of time. In Matthew 24, Jesus refers to the time of Jacob's tribulation as the tribulation period. And he makes reference to it in Matthew chapter 24. He says, and we'll come back to this a little bit later to make another point on replacement theology, that um, concerning this period of time, that there has never been a time like it, nor will there ever be a time like it again. So that's Jesus referring to another name for Jacob's, the time of Jacob's trouble. In the book of Joel, the whole book is primarily about the day of the Lord. When you read Joel, uh, that is another name for this period of time. Um, When John was writing the book of Revelation, in chapter 6, I think it's verse 16 or 17, he he refers to it as uh, the wrath of the Lamb. So we have different titles. The event itself actually begins with Revelation chapter 6, verse 1, when Jesus opens the first seal. We have a rider on a white horse who comes out and he makes war. It's a picture of the Antichrist. That's the beginning of this seven-year period of time. The end of the seven-year period of time is Revelation chapter 16 when we have the last of the bull judgments. And this judgment is a judgment of great hailstones, anywhere between 75 and 150 pounds. And um, they plummet the earth. And so when it talks about a time like no other and it emphasizes great pain trying to describe it in a way that a man would be like having labor pains and he's pale because he sees the things says men's hearts will be failing them for fear when they see the things that are coming upon the earth well it's a reference to this first prophecy we're looking at this morning verse 8 the time of Jacob's trouble now it's interesting that they call it Jacob's trouble because clearly we're talking Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, amen? And then we have the 12 tribes. So when it's referring to this period of time, it is, and Daniel confirms this. When you read Daniel 9, verse 24, he says the prophecy of the 70 weeks is for my people and the holy city. So we're not talking Gentiles, we're talking Jews and God dealing, and he still owes Israel this seven-year period of time. Now, um, if you go to, I'll leave that prophecy behind, and the rest of chapter 30, again, is this calm before the storm, where it's very up-tempo. Behold, he says, I will bring back the captivity of Jacob's tent. I'll have mercy on his dwelling places. The city will be built upon its own mound, and the palace shall remain according to its own plan. Then out of them shall proceed thanksgiving and the voice of those who make merry. I'll multiply them, they will not diminish. I will also glorify them and they shall not be small. Their children also shall be as before and their congregation will be established before me. I'll punish anyone who oppresses them Their nobles shall be from among them, and the governor shall come from their midst. Then I will cause him to draw near, and he will approach me. For who is this who pledged his heart to approach me, says the Lord? Uh, You shall be my people, and I will be your God. Behold, the whirlwind of the Lord goes forth with fury and continuing whirlwind. It will fall violently upon the head of the wicked, and the fierce anger of the Lord will not return until he's done it, and until he has performed the intents of his heart. And again, I like the way this ends. They weren't understanding all this, but he says, in the latter days, you guys will consider it. You're gonna have insights. And as we see, you know, every day, it's a, uh, in our own times, we're seeing sort of a calm, but we see this escalation. Now, I don't have all the news reports what's coming out of Milwaukee. I only heard about it when Paul was doing announcements this morning. I'm going to check it out this afternoon. But turmoil across the country and on, on many different levels. And um, as we end chapter 30, it's on this encouraging note, this calm. And then we get into chapter 31, 31 We went through on Wednesday evening, and one of the things I, I pointed out is 15 times the Lord uses the phrase, I will. I will, I will, I will, I will. And, and I'll give you an example in verse 1. At the same time, says the Lord, I will be the God of the families of Israel, and they will be my people. This is future. If you go down to verse four, I will build you and you will be rebuilt, O virgins of Israel. Now, verse six does not have an I will in it, but I want to read it because it makes a distinction between the coming back after the 70 years, which he is talking about also in these chapters. You're going to go in captivity for 70 years, but I'm going to bring you back. But verse six is not talking about that return. Verse six, let's read it. For there shall be a day when the watchman will cry on Mount Ephraim and they'll say, arise, let's go up to Zion, to the Lord our God. It is a reference when he brings back not just um, the people from one nation, but when we read here, it's in a plurality, the nations. I will bring them back from the north countries. And um, I will lead them, verse 9, I will cause them to walk by, by the rivers. And um, they will dance, verse 13, and they will sing. I will turn their mourning to joy. I will, verse 14, I will satiate the souls of the priests with abundance and my people will be satisfied with my goodness, says the Lord. Um, last night, that's the great thing about Second Service. I can't sidetrack until movies that I watched last night. <laughs> I decided I wanted to watch Masada. I forgot it was six hours long. <laughs> and uh, Judy made it till nine or so, and then she had a, she said, I can't stay up anymore. And it's interesting because being there many times, um, the oldest synagogue up till just a couple of years ago was Amasada. And what they did when they knew that they were going to be taken by the 10th Roman Legion, what they did is they took the book of Ezekiel and they opened it to that part. And in every synagogue, there's a special chamber where they keep the scriptures. So they opened it up to Ezekiel 36. Well, Ezekiel 36 is the promise that Israel would be brought back into the land, 35, 36, and 37. And this event, uh, Masada, and some of us will be there in November, this event took place after the fall of the second temple in 70 AD. So when they were able to hold off the Romans for a couple of years, but eventually they built that ramp. And uh, David Hawking, who is going to be one of our speakers here at the Prophecy Conference, was the first tourist group to be on top of Masada. And they actually used that Roman ramp. Today we have a, um, uh, uh, a ski trolley that takes us up to the top. But David said when they got to the top, there was all this noise coming out of the synagogue they had found the room where they had kept the scriptures and they were all excited because the scriptures were opened to Ezekiel chapter 36. My point is this, they knew they were going to die and they chose to die as free people rather than slaves but they also knew because they knew the scriptures that the Lord was going to bring them back. So they were dying with a hope not knowing when or how God would do it, but Ezekiel 36 says, I will bring them back and I will restore them. I will take the land that was buried. I'll make it look like the Garden of Eden. And that's all history, gang. That's past tense to us now living. As I read this verse in the latter days, we'll consider it. And so here we end verse 14 uh, with this, you know, this calm. And then uh, our second prophecy. I mean, talk about a roller coaster ride in emotion. It goes from gladness and joy and dancing to verse 15, where it changes completely. And it says, Thus says the Lord, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Now, if I'm Daniel, who said he read the book of Jeremiah, that's Daniel nine, verse one. Daniel said, I understood, after I was reading the book of Jeremiah that 70 years are determined. He was a student of Jeremiah. Well, he still, if he was reading Jeremiah, by the time he got to verse 15, I don't, I, I don't think Daniel had a clue what this verse was about. I do, because it's fulfilled, and this is where I want you to turn Matthew chapter 2, welcome home, sir. Matthew chapter 2, verse 16 through 18, but um, again, whenever I get an opportunity, I like to connect Old Testament prophecies and where they're fulfilled. And in this chapter, there's three of them. The setting is the visiting of the wise men. Now, in verse 1, it tells us now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, okay? So it's after the fact. Jesus has been there for a while. And it was that uh, wise men came into town. Uh, They were called the Magi. They were from Persia. Now, Daniel, his title was the chief Magi. So I believe that these guys knew where to look, when to look, because they were students of Daniel, and, of course, Daniel 9 tells us the very day that Jesus would allow himself to be worshipped in Jerusalem. And so we find here, when the wise men show up, it says in verse 6, here's another prophecy being fulfilled. They wanted to know, where is he who is born king of the Jews? And um, they knew. Verse 6 says, but you Bethlehem in the land of Judah, Micah 5 too. Are you not least among the rulers of Judah? For out of you will come a ruler who will will shepherd my people Israel. They knew the city. And um, then Herod pulled the guys aside, the wise men, and inquired, how long ago did you guys see this star appear? Now, it's quite a trek from Persia to Jerusalem, and I'm sure they had quite an entourage with them. So he's getting a time frame down, how long they've been on the road, when they see the star appear, so on and so forth. And um, he told the wise men, hey, guys, when you, when you find who you're looking for, would you come back and tell me? Because I would like to worship the king of the Jews. No, he doesn't. He wants to take out anybody that would be a threat to Herod. And um, they said it was a dangerous thing to either be married to or a friend of King Herod. He was so paranoid. He was taking people out right and left. And so an angel appears to the wise men in verse 12 and divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, but go home a different way. And then um, we have um, another prophecy in verse 15. And I didn't mention this during the first service, but in rereading it, I, I found there's still another one. Joseph is told to go to Egypt and stay there until Herod dies. Why? Because it's a prophecy. So in verse 15, it says, And they were there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, again, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I have called my son. That's Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. All right. Now, the prophecy That I don't think anybody would have got, including Daniel, um, until this event happens. And now we see the fulfillment in verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry. And he sent forth and he put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem, in all of his districts, from two years old and under, Notice, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. So obviously there's conversation. How long you guys been on the road? When did you first see the star? So Herod's plan is to get rid of all the male children that would fit into that time frame. So we read in verse 17, Then was fulfilled which was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah. Lamentation, weeping, and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they were no more. Now, those in the last days will consider it. That's you you and I. We know perfectly well what they're talking about. I don't think Daniel knew. This event would have had to take place. But what's interesting to me, and one of the things as we teach through the Bible chapter by chapter and verse by verse, it's not unusual it's the norm to go from something in one verse to a completely different emotion a completely different train of thought and a completely different prophecy what he's doing in 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 our our prophecies here let's go back to jeremiah is you have the first 14 verses the lord saying i'm going to do this i'll do that i'll bring them from the north country gather them from all over the earth they'll be glad they'll be rejoicing and then you have verse 15 and um, it is fulfilled in Matthew chapter 2 that's our second prophecy our third prophecy um, actually that was our um, our third our That was really our third prophecy. Our second prophecy is this verses uh, 1 through 14, which, again, is the future kingdom age. So we'll move on to our fourth prophecy, which brings us to our text this morning, chapter 31. We're going to read verses 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that i made with their fathers in the days that i took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of egypt my covenant which they broke though i was a husband to them says the lord but this is a covenant that i will make with the house of israel after those days says the lord i'm going to put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts i will be their people they will be my god or my people no more shall every man teach his neighbor and everybody his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they're all gonna know me from the least to the greatest, says the Lord, and I will forgive their iniquity, and their sins I will remember no more. Uh, the fulfillment of this prophecy is found in the book of Hebrews, and we need to turn to Hebrews chapter eight. And while you're turning, let me just fill in how difficult it would have had to been here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, having a Jewish mindset, and then be told that the God who is one has a son, and that God sent his son into the world to die for the sins of the world, Now, if you're a Jew, you have a problem with that. But not really, because if you do the Hebrew part of it, and they insisted on this only being one, along with the covenants and the laws and the commandments, uh, the singular for God is El. Elohim is a plurality. And when you read Genesis 1, it says, in the beginning, Elohim. It's in the plural. When you read verse 26, it says, let us make man in our plural image. And you have the plurality of the deity, right, starting in Genesis. But yet they insisted the idea of, of Jesus and the reason they despised him is they made, he made himself equal to the Father and it was one of the reasons they couldn't accept him. Plus, Uh, they had to explain that now all of chapter 10 is explained. there's only a need for one sacrifice. And after Jesus died on the cross, that's it. No more sacrifices are needed. It's been done once for all. Well, this really goes against tradition. Now, um, I grew up in a very traditional Protestant church. I'm going to be mentioning it later. Some of you grew up in other denominations, And um, you can get really set in tradition. Somebody want to say amen to that? But the pack of the pile is the Hebrew Jewish people. Their tradition, tradition, (laughs) you know, it's tradition. And now to explain to them that God is going to do a new covenant, well, you better have a pretty strong argument, and you better have a pretty good case in order to take them from Even after they accepted Gentiles, they had the big blow up in Acts chapter 15 because they wanted to make these Gentiles be circumcised and keep the Sabbath. So the first big powwow, there was all this back and forth because they wanted to keep some of their traditions. And the writer of the Hebrews is saying no. And here he explains why. But the prophecy itself comes from Jeremiah. There's going to be a new covenant. Well, the writer of Hebrews, let's pick it up in verse 7, says it this way. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, "when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. My Bible cross reference says Jeremiah 31 Verse 31. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God. They will be my people." None of them will teach his neighbor, saying, uh, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will have, I'll be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. In that, he says, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is become obsolete is growing old, is ready to vanish away. Jesus said as much when he said he came to establish the new covenant. And now, when a person is in Christ, he knows the Lord. We read and we hear the scripture, my sheep hear my voice, they know me. We know the uh, leading of the Holy Spirit when he speaks to us. We know that all of our sins, past, present, and future, have been taken care of, and uh, those who know the Lord know they know the Lord. And it's really that simple. And that's this, what's being established here. If you turn the page to chapter 10 of Hebrews, looking at verse 16 and 17, we have Jeremiah 31, verses 33 and 34 being fulfilled here. Verse 16, this is a covenant which I will make With them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my law in their hearts and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I'll remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. In other words, they had sacrifices, morning offering sacrifice. uh, In Daniel, we read, it was about the time of the evening sacrifice that he went to pray so they're used to sacrifices all the time. But now, the main overriding theme in Hebrews chapter 10, let me just give you one verse, verse 10. And this is repeated over and over again. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. When Jesus said, it is finished, the telestai, that means no more offerings in the temple no more Passover lambs because Jesus died on the Passover he was the Passover lamb good place for an amen what did John the Baptist say there he is right there there's a lamb of God and he's going to take away the sins of the world and once that was done it now nullified all the rest of the Jewish laws and traditions and it To take this a a step um, farther with this covenant, let me just ask this question at this time. Gang, can you see why it's so important to study the entire Bible, chapter by chapter and verse by verse? I mean, would you have ever figured out that that verse about Rachel was in Jeremiah? Or that these promises of this new covenant? And unless we go through the whole thing, And whenever we read in the New Testament where it says this was written so that it would fulfill, but unless we are teaching Genesis to Revelation, it's the only way that you're going to get the complete picture. Another good place for an amen. So we're, we're seeing it here. We have better insight as we study Hebrews because we're finding out the guy who wrote Hebrews is pulling it out of Jeremiah, saying this was foretold six to seven hundred years earlier. And what it does when it says faith comes by hearing and hearing comes by the word, well to me this is more than more than faith. This is evidence. It's it's a foregone conclusion. This is history that was spoken in advance and then it came to pass. Without exception, there has been one that hasn't been. That increases and should increase our faith, and it should be one of our weapons that we use when we take out the sword, says the sword of the word. Well, prophecy is powerful because if you'll just be, what I like to say, intellectually honest and use common sense, just say, doesn't the probability factor go off the chart here with these things coming to pass exactly like it says, isn't it? As the Lord says, let us reason together. It's reasonable to believe that the Bible is the Word of God because of Bible prophecy. It's unreasonable to think it isn't the Word of God because of prophecy. Everybody with me on that one, kind of? All right, let's take the next step. Let's go to the, the fifth prophecy here. And it's back in um, Jeremiah 31, verses 35 to 37. Where we read, verse 35, thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for a light by day, and the ordinance of the moon and the stars for a light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. Now, if those ordinances depart from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord. If heaven above can be measured, and the foundations of the earth be stretched beneath, then I will cast off all of the seed of Israel. For all they have done, says the Lord. I love this verse. And it caught me this morning when it says, if anybody here can measure the known universe. Well, I've been quoting for years that it went from 10 billion light years up to 15. And then I said, I think they're up to 20 right now. But you know what I did this morning? I said, Siri, how big is the universe? And she actually liked me today. And she talked back to me. She says, the universe is 93 billion light years across. And then underneath it, it says, but we don't know for sure because it could be infinite. So, Siri's having a truthful moment. But here's my point. It can't be done. And it's been changing. The scientists are always changing it, making it bigger and bigger and bigger. But the Lord says, go ahead, try to figure it out. You ain't gonna. Because I say that if you can, then I will cast off Israel from being my seed. Now, this brings me into an area where I want to talk about replacement theology, but I want to work my way up to it. So to do so, we need at this time to turn to the book of Romans chapter 11. And much of Christianity today, and why anti-Semitism is on the rise, is because of replacement theology. In Romans chapter 11, verses one through five, the question that was given in Jeremiah says, go ahead, if you can figure out how big the universe is, then I'll cast off Israel. But if you can't, then I'm not going to. That's what's being implied. Now, in Romans chapter 11, verse one, Paul says, I say that, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people who he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says about Elijah? He's going to use Elisha as an example here. How he pleaded with God against Israel saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars and I'm the only one left that they take my life. But the Lord does the divine response says to him, I have reserved, Elijah, for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed their knees to Baal. You don't know what you're talking about, Elijah. You think you're the only one. No, I have 7,000. And he's making the connection that um, God has not done with his people. He has a remnant. And um, even so, at this present time, there is a remnant, important word, according to the election of grace. There's going to be those Jewish people that are going to, like the Apostle Paul, and believe me, he had to knock Paul off his horse and blind him for three days to get his attention, right? But he got his attention, and he immediately began preaching Jesus after Ananias came and prayed for him. And um, he's the writer of most of the New Testament under the inspiration, of course, of the Holy Spirit. But he says, I'm a Jew, but... I'm one who understands it's no longer my works. And when he talks about his works concerning the works, he says, The law is blameless. And he says, I labored more than any of you. I studied under uh, Gamaliel. He said, I'm a Jew of the Jews. And he says, I counted all rubbish or dung for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ. He's willing to take all of his Jewishness, even though he's still a Jew. And he says, I'm going to accept the grace of God instead. All right, that brings us to verse 6, a very important verse, verses 6 through 8. And he says, and if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Well, what is Judaism? I mean, they got rules for pushing elevator keys on the Sabbath day in, in hotels in Israel. You can't push. You've got to use a Sabbath day elevator because pushing that button constitutes works. And they got a rule for everything, how far you can travel on a Sabbath day and, and um, many of them, a lot of works. But he says if it's by grace, then it's no longer works. Or otherwise grace is no longer grace. But if it's of works, then it's no longer grace. Otherwise works is no longer works. Paul says, I'm trading it all in, and I'm going to take the grace, uh, and I'm counting all the rest of my Judaism as dung because of this new covenant. All right. I just got done watching, and uh, we downloaded it, and eventually we'll be showing it to the congregation. um, Ray Comfort's new DVD on atheism. It's so good, I just can't tell you how good it is. And, um, you know, his, his approach is basically, he was going around asking people if they were atheists. He had about seven or eight or nine of them writing a roll, and they said, yes, I'm an atheist. And after 10 minutes with Ray, no, I'm a Christian. <laughs> because he shows the foolishness of, of, their, um, of their thinking and he challenges them in the simplest ways. Takes out a book, he said, here's a book. What do you think about it? You think it just happened? Uh, and look at those beautiful pictures. Oh, by the way, all the numbers just happen to fall one, two, three, four. Turn to page twenty-five. Next page, twenty-six. Do you think that happened by time and chance? And I said, of course not. And then, they, and then he brings in the subject of DNA, which for me has always been a slam dunk. The information in one strand of DNA goes to the sun back. Okay, one strand. And uh, we're we're talking probability odds of just happening by time and chance. you got to have an awful lot of faith to be an atheist. Amen? I mean, it's crazy. And by the time he reasoned with these people for a little bit, and by the way, he said, are you a good person? Yeah, of course I'm a good person. Think you're going to heaven? Hope so. And one by one, you know, after just spending a little bit of time with them, using common sense, and um, quoting the scripture, asking him, are you a good person? People who don't know the Bible. Um, and when it got right down to it, he asked, Romans 1 comes in here, um, because of creation. It says, Every, there is no, do you know there is no such thing as an atheist? And uh, Romans 1 says there's no such thing as an atheist. It says because of creation, they're without excuse. Because God has planted eternity in every person's mind. But it says this. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Well, it's not that they don't know. It's just that they want, and he'd ask them, quite frankly, he says, you'd rather be sleeping around right now than telling me telling you it's wrong to do that, right? You'd like to do that without feeling guilty about it. Isn't that the real reason? <laughs> yes. <laughs> You know, and just getting them to come, come clean. They suppress the truth. It's not that they don't know that there's a creator, but they worshiped the, crea- the creature more than the creator, and therefore God gave them over. What does that tell me? Well, if you want to fight against God, there is a line you can cross. It happened once before in Genesis. He says, my spirit will not always strive with man. And there comes that place where if you say you want to continue to suppress the truth, and you are got to say, get out of here, leave me alone. He will. You can harden your heart. It's the, the biblical term is a reprobate. You become so hardened and that um, you get so set in your ways that um, don't bother me with the truth. I'm going to live my own life. Well, you have a free will, and he's going to honor it. And that's the love of God. You can't, the Lord never, the Holy Spirit is such a gentleman. He never forces a person to come to Christ. He only lays it out and says this is what I've done for you. In your heart of hearts you know where you're at, you know you're a sinner, and you know that Jesus is the only one who lived the perfect life who can, make, who can wipe the slate clean. And if you choose to reject that, then there's no other name under heaven whereby you can be saved. That's the gospel. And there is no in between. The Lord, with the gospel there's no wiggle room because it's the way, the truth, and the life. And there, there are simply no alternatives. So most of the people that we talk to, if they don't know the scripture, are you a good person? Sure. And they base this on they've done some good things. Well, they've done some bad things, but they sort of think that God kind of grades on a curve and the, and the good stuff is going to outweigh the bad stuff. And, um, or they'll gravitate towards Hinduism and reincarnation if I don't get it right the first time, I'm going to get a second crack at it. My Bible says once to die and then the judgment. That's it. But this, unfortunately, is reinforced with churches that teach that you must have good works and faith in order to go to heaven. Now, let me read, before I go any farther, Romans eleven six one more time. I want you to memorize this one. If it's by grace, then it is no longer of works. Can you see here, it's mutually exclusive. It's one or the other. Grace is grace, and works is works. And it's either one or the other. Now, in Roman Catholicism, um, we have the teaching. uh, While I'm I'm doing this, I want you to turn to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians five, and while they turn to Galatians 5, I'm going to quote James 2 verse 10. It's one or the other. James 2:10 says, "For whoever shall keep the whole law yet stumbles in one point, you're guilty of everything. So imagine living a perfect life your whole life, and then right before you die, you make one sin. You're guilty of it all." If you look at Galatians 5, let's read the first five verses. Paul says, stand fast in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. I want to stop right there. In religion, you have no freedom. Because if I think that my works have anything to do with my salvation, I'm going to screw it up somewhere, and I'm not going to be free. But I can stand before you this morning as free as a bird. Because... I know it doesn't have anything to do with me. And when it says, stand fast, that's made us free. When Jesus said, you'll know the truth, and it'll set you free, what is that truth? I'm not a part of the equation. Jesus did it all. And therefore, he says, come boldly. But if it's up to me, no, my flesh is way too tricky. Paul said he wouldn't even judge himself. He says my flesh is so tricky I might think it was, I was doing a good deed but my motive was wrong and I can't even trust my own motives. So he says I'll have to let the Lord be the, be the judge of all that. But the freedom comes and he says don't be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Well what's that? Trying to please God by your works. Indeed I Paul say to you if, if you become circumcised Christ profits you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he's a debtor to keep the whole law. There's a group that's getting popularity. I just call them the Sabbath keepers. They're born-again Christians who somebody told them that they have to keep the Sabbath day because it's part of the Ten Commandments. And my first thought when I hear of Sabbath keepers is they don't know their Bible very well. And they certainly don't know... um, Romans chapter 11, verse 6. Because if you're going to keep the Sabbath as part of the Ten Commandments, then you have to keep all of them. And I don't know if you're aware of it, it's, it's quite a movement today that is out there that a lot of people are gravitating towards. But if you want to keep that one, you have to keep all of them. All right, verse 4, you have become entangled, estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by the law, you've fallen from grace. For we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of the righteousness by faith. And so on these um, the first couple of verses, one through six here, for Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything uh, but faith working through love. Now, What I'm gonna put up on the screen at this point is the denominations in the United States of America that hold to something that we call replacement theology. And I'm also gonna talk a little bit about preterism. What replacement theology is, is that because Israel as a whole rejected Jesus, then all the promises that were made to Israel are now given to the church. Therefore, we have replacement theology. The church of Jesus Christ inherits all the promises of Israel, and God is done with Israel, and they're out of the picture completely. That's what's called replacement theology. And one of the leaders with that on the top of the list in America is the Roman Catholic Church. I'm gonna spend a little time on Roman Catholic Church and right now somebody's thinking, oh, there goes Dwight bashing the Catholics again and um, and I'm gonna say, hold it just a second here and I'm gonna ask a fair question. I'm gonna actually give you Canon 9 from the Council of Trent and what they have to say as far as faith and works together. And let's see who is bashing who. Um, This is a direct quote from their own canon. I quote, If anyone says that the sinner is justified by faith alone, so that thus he understands nothing else is required to cooperate in order to obtain the grace of justification, being saved, And that it is not any way necessary that he be prepared and disposed by the action of his own will. In other words, he has to have his good works. It's got to be something more than just faith by grace. If anybody like myself teaches otherwise, then they say, let that person, me in this case, be anathema. Now, do you guys know what anathema is? Anathema means let this person be eternally damned because of what I'm saying. Now simple question, who's doing the bashing here? I'm just saying that Romans 11:6 says it's one or the other, either works or faith, and it's crystal clear in the scriptures. Yet the ninth canon in the Council of Trent says just the opposite. If anybody says that it's by faith alone, then let that person be eternally damned. Whoa, that's pretty heavy, don't you think? Um, that's quite a threat. And that's, if, if you've been brought up in that tradition, and in America, the number one people who believe in replacement theology, top of the list, 66 million are Roman Catholics. Gang, the reason I'm making this such a big deal is Bible foretells that someday there's gonna be a one world religion. Amen? Revelation 17 says it's gonna be headquartered in Rome. And today we have the Pope coming out and saying everybody's going to heaven. He's letting down every denominational distinctive of the Roman Catholic Church to get people to come in and come back home is the the plea. And the thing is, denomination after denomination is buying into it and they say, can't we all just get along? Can't we just have unity? Didn't Jesus say we're to love one another? Oh yeah, that's all true. But most of my New Testament, and Jesus in particular, is defending the gospel of grace, not adding anything to it or taking away anything from it. So I want you to be aware of the latest move, movement. Um, our Prophecy Conference is less than a month away. Roger Oakland's topic is The Road to Rome. And I want Calvary of Appleton and those who attend from really around the world that will be watching or live streaming or or traveling, that what's happening today in the movement today is this move towards ecumenicalism, which means you have to put down certain distinctives uh, in order to be a part of this movement. Now, we shouldn't be surprised at all, should we? Does the Bible say there's going to be one world of religion? Yeah. Does it say it's going to be headquartered in Rome? Yeah. Does it say the Antichrist is going to destroy it after three and a half years? Yeah. All that is, anybody who knows their Bible knows that's what's coming down the pike. And it all has to do with replacement theology. And let me just pick on my own denomination growing up, okay? I'm up there. Um, Let's just go through the list. I was quartered by... Um, somebody from the first service The red letter ones here Are blatantly um, replacement theology God is done with Israel And um, and it's been replaced And these are the denominations that hold to it The United Methodist Church there in red I was corrected um, Elka, the Evangelical Lutheran Church This was done in 2014 So it's a couple years old they are now full on replacement. Presbyterian Church, uh, Missouri Synod Lutheran, that's what I was a part of, are uh, part of replacement theology. Methodist, Episcopal, uh, Greek Orthodox, and you can see the list goes on and on. But replacement theology is widely held, and my problem with replacement theology is that. Jeremiah 31, verse 35 says, the Lord said, who gives the sun for light by day, the ordinance of the moon and stars light by night? Who disturbs the sea and its waves roar? The Lord of hosts is his name. And if those ordinances depart from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel will also cease from being a nation forever. For thus says the Lord, if you can measure If heaven can be measured and the foundations of the earth stretched out, I will cast off all of the seed of Israel. No. You know what they don't tell you? Uh, Those in replacement theology? Let me throw in preterism at this time. What is a preterist? A preterist is somebody who believes that the book of Daniel and Revelation, along with replacement theology, many of them, believe that it was all these events were fulfilled in 70 A.D., that the book of Daniel and Revelation, all that was fulfilled 2,000 years ago in 70 A.D. That's what they'll tell you. This is what they won't tell you. If you're still in in, uh, Romans chapter 11, and he starts out in verse 1, has God cast away his people? Nope, certainly not. Look at verse 25. This is what they don't tell you. I don't want you, I desire, brethren, that you do not be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinions, that this hardening of heart to Israel, until, yes, God has put them away, blinded them for a season, but then there's this little word, until. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And then what? and then Israel will be saved. You'll never have a preterist read that scripture to you. Or 26, where it says, then Israel will be saved. When? When the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. Now, right before I came out for the first service, this little word until hit me in the back of the head, and it wasn't a part of my notes, but I added it before I came out. And because I have a little bit more time during the second service, I'm going to elaborate. (laughs) So let's go to Matthew chapter 24 and show you another little until. It hit me like a ton of bricks. And it ties in to our study, Matthew 24. Actually, this part I had in my notes, but I'm going to add to it. Here's the other thing that's a slam dunk. When it comes to exposing a preterist. And when they tell you, oh, that was all fulfilled in 70 AD. Really. In verse 15, Jesus is pointing back uh, to Daniel, who's talking about the abomination of desolation. What is that? In Second Thessalonians chapter 2, it says that the Antichrist is going to go into a yet future temple. He's going to sit down, and he's going to say, I'm God. It's called the abomination of desolation. And then he uses that as a time frame. He says, you Jews that are alive during that time in in Israel, run for your life. Don't go back into your house to get your coat. Split. And then he says in verse 21, for then there will be great tribulation. Another word for the time of Jacob's trouble. Such has not been since the beginning of the world. Really? We're talking Noah's flood here, Gabe nor ever shall be and unless those days were shortened no flesh would be saved but for the elect's sake those days will be shortened simple question was the destruction I watched Masada last night in 70 AD was that the most destructive time in human history there's never been anything worse since then no Holocaust was worse than that this one scripture right here and by the way The book of Revelation wasn't written until 96 A.D. And uh, they are saying all these things happened in 70 A.D. Is there something wrong with this picture? Are you tracking with me when I say that? John wrote the book of Revelation in 96 A.D. They said it was all fulfilled in 70 A.D. Preterism, I don't want to even spend that much time in it because it's so foolish to me to give it the time of day. But... If you don't know your Bible, gang, doesn't it say, My people perish for lack of knowledge of my word? If you know the word, um, well, this for instance, do you know that five sixths of the Bible is all about Israel? It is. Eighty three percent of the Bible is about Israel. We're the ones getting grafted in, um, they're, they're the trunk. We were just simply being grafted into who they are. All right, let's finish this up this morning. Jeremiah, he's encouraging them the calm before the storm. He says there's gonna be a bright future, just like in Masada. They know they were gonna die that night, but they knew that Ezekiel 36 said they're coming back someday. It gave them hope. Just like there was a hope for Israel that the storm was gonna come in the next chapter. In chapter 34, Jerusalem will fall to Nebuchadnezzar, just like Jeremiah said. But I believe, as I look at our own times, that I believe that we're living in a calm before the storm, even as I speak this morning. And let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. If you turn the page, Matthew 24, and go to verse 36. It says, but of that day no one knows the day or the hour, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Daniel chapter 9 tells me the coming, the day of the coming when Jesus would be worshiped. Psalm 118 says, This is the day, particular day that the Lord has made. That was April 632 AD. I know that date. I also know the date when Jesus is gonna come the second time. That's the last three verses. Take notes if you want to, Revelation chapter 12. After the abomination of desolations takes place, mark your calendar. 1,290 days later, second coming. I know the date of the first coming. I know the date of the second coming. What I don't know the date is when the Lord's gonna come and take me out of here at the rapture. I sure wish it was right now. Don't you? All I know is that the signs are all over the place. And when we pick it up here and it says nobody knows the day or the hour, we're talking about the rapture. But this is why, this is what I added to my notes because there's another little until in here that captured my thoughts in the back room. Let's read it. But as it was in the days of Noah, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Let's just talk about that for a moment. For 120 years, what was Noah's message? Judgment. Why are you building a boat? It's going to rain. What's that? (laughs) They had no idea. They figured he was a crazy old man. All he did was talk about judgment and something that had never happened before. What is the rapture of the church? Except for Elijah and Enoch one person at a time, it's happened to them. But we're talking about millions of people. And millions of people that are changed, 1 Corinthians 15, in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, uh, will be, the word there is metamorphosized, will be changed just that quickly. When's it gonna happen? I don't know. But it does give the conditions leading up to that time, and this is what I found interesting. In the days of Noah, what were they doing? Oh, they were eating and drinking and marrying, giving in marriage, until the day it started to rain. In other words, there was a calm before the storm. Right now, we sense in our spirit either the Middle East, ISIS, the economy, the riots of Milwaukee. It's just intensifying. Everybody, we agree on that, right? We sense some things about, the other issues about to hit. But at the same time, you know, we're going to have a baptism next week. Praise the Lord. Brats. <laughs> Good weather. And um, baby showers. And there's a calm right now. And a lot of people are totally unaware. And and it says, and they did not know, these people, that were eating and drinking and marrying... And they did not know, notice the word? What is it? Until. Until the flood came and took them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. Now this is about the rapture. One will be taken and the other one left. One working at Walmart, one will be taken, one will be left. (laughs) My point is everyday life, it was a calm. And all of a sudden, just like that, like Larry Norman's, Old song in the Jesus movement. Man and wife asleep in bed. She turns his head. He's gone. I wish we'd all been ready. And in that moment, there's gonna be that awareness that I knew. And I wasn't ready. So what does the Lord say? Watch. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, if the thief would have known when he was coming he would have watched Not allowed a house to be broken in for Therefore you also be ready For the son of man is coming at an hour When you do not expect him Jeremiah's message To the people Before the storm Was to try to comfort them It's going to be okay in the end Because I'm going to bring you back And I want to close on that thought this morning By having you turn to First Thessalonians chapter 5 We have a calm before the storm Jesus' admonition is for us is to be ready. And so he addresses it in 1 Thessalonians 5 and he says, But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write. For you yourself know perfectly that the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. In other words, like a calm before the storm. It's just going to happen. When they say peace and safety, then all of a sudden sudden destruction comes upon them. Can you imagine for a second what the world is going to be like the day after the rapture? When the unthinkable has happened? Can you imagine the instability in the stock market and the thoughts that are going through people's head? Oh, we've been preconditioned with it since Star Trek came on TV on on what the lie is going to be and how it's going to be explained away. But we're not to be ignorant of how his devices. But it's going to come just like that when they're talking about peace and safety, and then something happens so radical that um, sudden destruction comes upon them, and here's this interesting phrase that Jeremiah uses: "As labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape." That's exactly what Jeremiah said. It's going to be like a man putting his hands on his loins, pale face, and can't believe what's happened because they've entered into that time of. Jacob's trouble that's what's on the horizon but you brethren you're not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief we should know the signposts. Your you're sons of light sons of the day we are not of the night or of the darkness therefore let us not sleep as others do let us watch and be sober for those who sleep sleep at night and those who get drunk get drunk at night but let us who are of the day be sober putting on the breast plate of love and faith, the helmet of salvation. Why? For God did not appoint us to wrath. Jesus said in Revelation 6:17 that that time of Jacob's trouble is a time of the wrath of the Lamb. But to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, scare one another to death with these verses. Is that what it says? Yeah. Why is it important to know these things? Because everybody knows something coming down, right? But not you, church. Just as Jeremiah wanted to comfort the people before judgment came and Nebuchadnezzar comes on chapter 34, so I want the church, the family here at Calvary, be fully aware of what's going, going on and know that God has a plan and that therefore comfort one another. Um, he had a plan for Noah. Did Noah have a popular message? Nope. Did anybody believe him? Nope. Did Jeremiah have a popular message? Nope. Did anybody believe him? Nope. But yet when you read about these men, you know what the Bible calls them? They were faithful to their generation. And gang, we're living in a time where everybody's afraid of what somebody thinks about them. And you can't be that. Are you up for it? Are you willing to not compromise? Are you you willing to actually say, you know what, I actually know what's going on in the world today. You want me to talk to you about it? Be a Ray Comfort. I like his style. And, um, he, he reasons with you. And it's a time to not care what anybody thinks except what the Lord thinks. Now, I love the darlings over there. They're good friends of ours. And, um, but, you know, Todd likes Mexican. and I like Mexican, so we get along on that level. But, um, you know, if it comes down to my friendship with Todd, Don't worry, bro, we're still friends after I pick on you from the pulpit where everybody around the world is hearing your name this morning. I'm going to care less what he thinks. And that's why we're friends, because he knows that. And he cares less what I think the other way around, because we care what he thinks. And gang, we're living in a generation of people that are so passive, they won't stand for anything. And that's the world in which we live, and we can't do that. And that's why it's saying here um, we we are to be aware of the times and the seasons. So don't be undone. Be comforted. God's got it all under your control. And uh, you can be comforted um, even though the storm could hit before the baptism next week. Amen? Let's stand and we'll close in prayer. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. And we just pray as... We're reading through Jeremiah. We see so many of the similarities that are there. And we just pray, Lord, and we're so grateful for the scriptures that as we see the events unfold, we're so grateful for the certainty of scripture and the words that you gave that heaven and earth will pass away, but not this book or the promises in this book. And we're grateful, Jesus, that you give us this comfort and this hope. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.